Welcome to Leverage Masters, airing weekly on Tuesdays at 12 Eastern and on demand on iTunes and Blog Talk Radio. Leverage Masters hosts Jack Humphrey and Gina Gaudio-Graves discuss leverage strategy with guest leveragists. Be sure to subscribe to Leverage Masters in your favorite podcatcher for great tips and case studies on using leverage to achieve your biggest goals much faster. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Leverage Masters. I am your co-host, Gina Gaudio-Grace, and along with Andrea Adams-Miller, we are the hosts of Leverage Masters. Andrea, how are you today? Well, I'm absolutely beautiful. It's a beautiful day. I'm beautiful, I just said. That's hysterical. That was the Freudian slip. Well, I am beautiful, and today's a beautiful day, and I'm really excited about the guest that we have on. I've been looking forward to it. Uh, He's somebody I really super admire, and I know, Gina, you're super excited about him being on as well. Well, you literally helped me to cross off a second item off of my bucket list, My first item, my new Martin guitar, got crossed off just a couple of weeks ago. It's not very often that I've, in fact, I don't think I've ever had two bucket list items crossed off in the same month ever. Well, let's shoot for a third um, because our next guest (laughs) really helps make wishes come true. So it's quite of a possibility here. Uh, So I want to let everyone know that we are so excited because we have Frank Shankwitz with us. He is the wish man, the founder of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And this June, there is a movie being made or being released about him. It's the true story of how the Make-A-Wish Foundation came to be. And we're super excited about sharing all of that information with you and really the wishman is all about frank's life and the incidents and the people who developed him and his character and his adventures during law enforcement that led to a situation that inspired the idea to make children's wishes come true those children who um, were um, unfortunately going to die usually going to die or at least diagnosed with an illness that gave that possibility to them that they may not have their wishes come true uh, for a long life. So Frank really made a possibility of millions of children of having one wish come true for them. So uh, Gina, let's give a standing ovation for Frank to the show. Woohoo! <laughs> well, Frank, you. I am so honored to have you here with us on Leverage Masters today. And I am looking forward to having you share a little bit of the background of how you became known as the Wishman. Oh, I'd be happy to, be happy to. And uh, it's kind of a long narrative, but uh, I just had a very unusual childhood and uh, not so much maybe different from others, but enough where Hollywood decided they want to make a movie about it. But uh, (laughs) born in Chicago and uh, at age two, my mother divorced my father and left for who know where, we never did find out. And from age two to five, lived with my grandparents, my dad, aunts, uncles. I mean, just a, such a happy period in my life. And at age five, uh, in kindergarten, uh, during recess, a lady came up, grabbed me, drugged me off, said, I'm your mother. I had no idea who she was. And uh, kind of kicking and screaming and a couple smacks on the head usually stops that for a five-year-old threw me in a car and said, we're going to Arizona. Um, I had no idea where Arizona was. We hadn't got that quite that far in geography yet in kindergarten. And she took a strange route going to Michigan, where she had some friends. But for the next five years, uh, it was always a survival thing. In the summers, we lived in a tent in a state park. When it got cold, we were in the car, sleeping in a car. When those Michigan snows really started, she'd find some old flop house somewhere, it was always an issue of food, uh, survival. But the biggest thing was I was learning to take care of myself. At age wow. 10, my father had found us and uh, sent the sheriff's office to get out there. My mother learned of this through the little things we had in the car and said, we're going to Arizona. And again, kicking and screaming, uh, threw me in the car, and off we went. And it took several weeks to get to Arizona. She, she kept running out of money. She'd get a job as a waitress get enough tip money to get some gas and uh, food. And, again, food was always an issue. Um, Got outside of a little town called Seligman, Arizona, on old Route 66. 
and maybe some of your listeners have uh, seen the Disney uh, animated movie Cars. And yeah. one of the feature one of the feature towns in Cars was Radiator Springs. Well, Radiator mm-hmm. Springs is Seligman, Arizona. Just <laughs> just just a little town, 500 people, approximately a uh, railroad division point, a big ranching community for stockyards. Uh, about 500 people in the town, predominantly uh, Mexican and Indian, and that's where uh, a rancher took us in. We had nothing. Um, we slept for the next six weeks on his kitchen floor on bedrolls. But during wow. that time, uh, I, I got a job as a dishwasher, 10 years old, and my mother got a job as a maid. I was making more money than she was. But while I was uh, working, one day I, I was watching a man across the street, a Mexican man across the street, building something, and I just went over out of curiosity. And uh, he said, what's your name? And I said, Frank. And he said, well, from now on, you're Poncho meaning Frank in Spanish, and he said, grab a hammer, kid. And he said, my name's Juan, but he had this twinkle in his eye, and he said, but you can, but the people in town call me Juan. <laughs> but all of, a sudden, all of a sudden, this man became my father figure. Uh, he, I, I had never worked with any type of tools. Uh, he taught me carpentry. Um, he started introducing me to sports. I had never played any, any type of sports, because where we lived, I never had friends whatsoever. Introduced me to sports, introduced me to music, eventually got me involved with, with a, a drums, into the dance band, into the school uh, band, uh, and taught me so much. But the biggest thing he taught me was, Frank, when you can, give back. Now, this is 1950s, and that's not a popular term. It is a very popular term today, give back. I said, Juan, what do you mean? I, I said, we have nothing. Uh, in fact, we finally, uh, people in town found us an old wrecked travel trailer, that they refurbished enough where we could have, at least have a shelter where we were living in. Uh, it didn't have a shower. We could use, I could use the uh, Santa Fe uh, work showers to clean up every day. But while we don't have anything, he said, you don't have to have money to give back. And this was an important lesson. He said, you can give back your time. He said, look at, look at Mrs. Sanchez, the widow Sanchez. She's always bringing you and your mom beans and tortillas, helping you with food. But look at her yard. It's a mess. Look at the front of the house. It's a mess. She can't do it, but you can. You're big enough to go over there, and you're paying back. You're giving back. Look at Mr. Ortega. They got an old wrecked boxcar from the Santa Fe line that they're trying to make into their home. They're trying to clean it up and paint it. They help you. You help them. Give back. A very important lesson. And it helped develop the character and the integrity. And I like to say those two traits are, in fact, developed. They're not inherited. When I started seventh grade, my mother told me, she said, I can't afford you anymore. You're on your own. I'm leaving. And she did. I went to Juan and said, "How? How? I'm not sure what I'm going to do right now. And, again, the most important lesson. said, Frank, always learn to turn that negative to the positive. And I said, what do you mean? I, I I don't know what to do. He said, I've arranged for you to live with the widow Sanchez. You make $26 a week. You, She's going to charge you $20 a week, room and board. For the first time ever, you're going to have your own pocket money because every money I've ever made went straight to my mother. He said, but right. the most positive thing is, for the first time, you're going to have your own room. You're going to have a indoor shower and plumbing. Wow. Those are the positives. But another big thing is she's the best cook in town. Well, there's no argument on that. You're not going to have to worry about food anymore. And she got the first television set in Sligman, Arizona. I got to watch the Mickey Mouse Club. <laughs> <laughs> so all those, all those negatives turned into the positives. And the biggest lesson also was never feel sorry for yourself because there's always something you can do to better things. Everybody has some little downer type things, but learn to make those again those negatives into positives. Um, really big, big lessons. Yes. And and tell, tell me when you need me to take a little break, because I'll just go on here real quick. Keep going. <laughs> Very interesting. Okay. But um, starting in high school, my mother contacted me, and she said, I need help. I, I, she moved to a town called Prescott, Arizona. It's north in the mountains in northern Arizona, where I currently reside. And uh, she said, I just need help financially. I want you to come to Prescott, get a job, and uh, help me out, which I did. Uh, 
My mother and I never had a close relationship, but she's my mother, and I respect her. Came to Prescott, got a job right away, and into high school. And I got involved with uh, football, especially in Sligman, Arizona, not playing because they didn't have that Pop Warner type thing or the junior high uh, basketball teams. But uh, they allowed me to practice with the high school team just to learn the sport. And coach came up to me and asked me to try out. And I said, yes, sir. I tried out and made the team immediately. But the teaching standards in Sligman were quite different from uh, Prescott. And they gave me my aptitude test, and I failed in math. And they wanted to put me back in eighth grade. Here again is where people are helping out. The coach said, that's not going to happen, and worked with me all summer to bring up my math wow. skills, took the test again, passed with flying colors. And I just remember this. Here, here's these people again helping me out. Great great times in Sligman, I mean, in Prescott, Arizona. Uh, even my, my employer, when it came time for football or basketball games, he worked around my schedule that I could go to those games and then when they were over, come back and finish my shift. Um, following high school, I went into the Air Force. And I just felt this need to serve. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed the Air Force, Vietnam era. Uh, I'm not a Vietnam uh, a combat veteran. I was never in country. I spent the majority of my four years in England. And again, uh, it was Air Police, what they called then, a special assignment, uh, top secret clearances. But one of the highlights of my career in the Air Force was I was on the base honor guard. And when Sir Winston Churchill passed away, I was selected to be part of the uh, his honor guard for his burial, which to me wow. was just a big, big thrill to uh, be associated with that great man. Following the Air that Force, that is such a huge that's a huge distinction. I just want to reflect on that a moment. I mean, to be able to be on the honor guard for Winston Churchill. I mean, he is so repeated in, in speeches and uh, in eulogies and in college um, commencements, you know, and, and other books and on television, you know, you know, people refer to him so many times in the world. Um, you know, what a distinction for you to, you know, be this kid and who's, you know, really struggling and then to be able to go through the military and to be recognized as somebody who is of a, such a distinction, of such integrity that you were chosen. I, I, don't, I don't want that to go by. I, I want really the audience to know that, like already at this young age, you had learned this, uh, which is crazy, it really, when you think about it, that how, how in the fact that you learned to be so, such a man of honor and respect, considering how you were uprooted and literally stolen out of your world, and yet instead of turning into this crazy kid who, you know, did crazy things, that you became such a man of honor and then were able to honor someone else by being on their honor guard. I, I, I just wanted to make sure that people get that. I mean, that's who you were from day one. I love it. Yeah. All right, go ahead. And, 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 yeah, and thank you for that because I had uh, really studied uh, in school uh, history and especially World War II history, and uh, Mr. Churchill was one of my heroes. Um, and then, like you say, and, and it was a little embarrassing because I respected that man so much, his ideology and that, that as we were doing the final leg of the, uh, where I was at for the honor guard, uh, where I was supposed to be professional attention, and I, am, I can't <laughs> wipe the tears of my eyes that are streaming down my face just out of respect for that man. Wow. But that, uh, in that, the Air Force, just, just, yeah, in the Air Force, just as I'm ready to uh, fulfill my uh, enlistment, um, Motorola came over overseas, and they were interviewing people for jobs in the States and in the Phoenix area, which was a, a small world thing. And what they were looking for was uh, people with the top secret clearances because Motorola was now involved with the Atlas Missile Program for Space and um, I filled out an application there, and when I um, came back to the States, up to Prescott, I got a call, we'd like you to come down and interview with Motorola. And, and they were, again, they were looking for the Vietnam-era veterans, and this is the age, now this is the mid-60s, the ages of uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all the hippie bands and so on. And the problem Motorola was having with these college graduates, these engineers, 
with the degrees, they couldn't pass a background test for these top secret oh. clearances because of the drugs. And I accepted the position of Motorola. Um, they sent me to college courses. I used the GI Bill to go to college courses. Ended up being a statistical engineer with them, which my math teachers just cracked up on. <laughs> because yeah, that, that cracks me up. <laughs> yeah. And then Statistics what we're doing was we're, really we were, hard. Um, I, I took it as well. That is a really, yeah. really hard course. And considering that you almost didn't make it into eighth grade or had to repeat eighth grade because of math, that's even funny, more ironic. Yeah. <laughs> And then, and what we were doing was uh, trying to determine failure rate on certain components for the missile. Excellent job, excellent pay, uh, just so much advancement. And but I was very kind of bored in that. I mean, I, and I'm having to live in Phoenix. I don't like the big cities. I'm a small town boy. Uh, Motorola, there was no complaints with them whatsoever. Like I said, treated me so good. But several of my friends had joined from high school. Had joined the Arizona Highway Patrol, and kept. Egging me on, Frank, you ought to fly, you ought to join with your background, air police, with your clearances, with your engineering background, you'd be a perfect fit. And I would say, guys, I'd love to do that. It sounds like a good adventure, but I make in one week what you guys make in a month. I just can't afford to do that. But I kept thinking about that, and I thought, you know what, just on a whim, I'm going to go ahead and put in an application. And was surprised when I was asked to come in to test, uh, pass the the testing Passed the oral board, was offered a position, and I said, well, what the heck, let's try something new. Best decision I ever made, because 42 years later, I retired from law enforcement career. <laughs> but my first and, assignment with the Arizona Highway Patrol was down in Yuma, Arizona, down by the Mexican uh, border. And I was also continuing taking college courses down there. And coach came up to me one day, and he said, I know your coach um, from your days in Prescott High School, and I'd like you to get involved with the Special Olympics program, which I had never heard of. And he said, I'd like you to teach some of these kids the uh, baseball throw and throw a football and basketball and just work with some of these boys. I said, well, Coach, that sounds like a lot of fun. I'd like to do that. Great working with these kids. I just loved it. And as I'm doing this, all of a sudden I started thinking about Juan saying, you give back. And I thought, Juan, maybe I'm starting to give back a little bit. And it was my first involvement with these kids. Uh, I was down there, and the commanders in Phoenix called me up and said, we're starting a new uh, motorcycle unit. It's going to be a 10-man squad that's going to work the whole state of Arizona. Uh, We'd like you to uh, go through motorcycle training, and if you pass, we'll assign you to that squad. And being an adventurous guy, yeah, let's try that. Went through motor school, passed that. Had you ever driven a motorcycle before that? Oh, yes, yes, but never police way. <laughs> complete, <laughs> complete, complete different training. And, and, yeah, and I would say, say that. <laughs> yeah, I ended up being an instructor, and we, we'd tell the people, okay, you think you know how to ride a motorcycle. Well, you don't. And when they'd start going to police training, they didn't. They had no idea. Yeah, So I bet. In fact, we, we used to like to take the people that never ridden motorcycles to teach them the correct way. But it really enjoyed this. Uh, two weeks in one town, two weeks in another town. And the TV show Chips became very popular at that time. And for people that don't know what Chips was about, it was an NBC television show about the adventures of two California Highway Patrol motorcycle officers, Ponch and John. And, and the kids really loved this show. And all of a sudden, we're riding into these town, two-man team, just like this chip show. And the kids are yelling, hey, Ponch, hey, John, waving at us. And we got a kick out of that. Instead of, oh, there's the police. They're going to put me in jail or something. And I asked our commanders, I said, I said, you know, this might be some good PR. When we kind of have some slow time in these little towns, can we go to the grade schools with the permission of the school and talk to the kids about bicycle safety? Uh, which they said, yeah, that'd be great, and we did. And the kids could care less about the bicycle safety. They just wanted to get all over the motorcycles. And, and again, it was a great PR because these kids are watching chips, and our equipment was identical. In fact, we initially trained with California Highway Patrol. So they just related us as chips right away. Right. And uh, so I have, I, just real quick, I have a, a, a special affinity to uh, chips because my dad – 
uh, everybody thought my dad and Erica Estrada, uh, Estrada was the same person because my dad and him looked very similar at that time. And so all the kids in school were like, your dad is Ponch. And they were so excited. And then, and then of course, there's the ironic, um, you were called Ponch, but you look more like John. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Larry Wilcox played John and Eric Estrada, as you said. And um, with Punch, uh-huh. and, and um, in 1978, uh, our whole team, our whole ten-man team, was assigned to an area called Park, Arizona, on the California border, Colorado River, Arizona-California border. Uh, Easter time, this little town of Park, or 2,000 people turned into 80,000 people. And Easter break, uh, just crazy. Again, drunk drivers, drugs, homicides, uh, you name it. And I was involved in a high-speed chase with a drunk driver, 80 miles an hour in a 25 zone, when another drunk driver pulled directly in front of me, um, hit him broadside at 80, and I was told the crash was spectacular. Um, and I was pronounced dead at the scene. Now, I've learned, this, I've learned all of this later as recovery hours who were talking, so I'm not dead at the scene. Right. But my partner tried to revive me. He could not do it. He called in the code 963A, officer killed in the line of duty. Now, every police officer I work with myself believe in a higher being, no matter what religion it might be. We go to work every day. We say a prayer. Uh, Please allow me to come home. We get home at night. We say a little thank you prayer. And I always feel we have a guardian angel. I've been in so many situations um, where I think the guardian angels are getting tired. And God sent down the guardian angel this day in the form of an off-duty emergency room nurse from California. Um, she stopped at the scene. She saw what was going on. She identified herself. She said, I want to try and, and revive him. My partner said, we, there's no pulse, no heartbeat. For the next four minutes, she performed CPR. And I, I don't know if anybody in your listeners or yourself have performed CPR. It's extremely exhausting, extremely exhausting. And she wouldn't give up. And obviously, she brought me back to life. And when I was going through counseling and that, the uh, do- doctor was telling me, um, what do you recall on that? And he said, did you go through the tunnel and explain the tunnel? And a lot of this happens with people in emergency rooms. When you die, you're looking at the lights like boat driving through a tunnel, and all of a sudden the light just closes, you're dead. And as you're brought back to life, uh, that you see that little pin of light, and it gets brighter and brighter when it opens. All of a sudden your eyes and senses come back, and you're brought back to life. And... Um, do we a little humorous story on this? You got to have humor to be a police officer. Uh, the doctor said, "What was the what was the first senses you recall?" And I said, "The re, uh, uh, hearing. I could hear in the background. She brought him back. She brought him back. What are they talking about? I'm hearing sirens. All this commotion. Uh, the sense of touch. Something is, is is tickling my face. Something is on my lips. The sense of smell. Something very pleasant odor, like a perfume." The sense of sight. I open my eyes, and there's a beautiful blonde with a lip lock on me. <laughs> and if this is heaven, I'm fine with this. This is okay. <laughs> and, then, and then I also learned that my partner had, had uh, performed CPR. Big, ugly guy, bushy mustache, bugs always in it. And uh, if I would have woke up to him, it would have been so traumatic. So we got to add that little <laughs> bit of humor. You would have thought he went the other direction and wondered why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But well, you know, I do want to share. I I yeah, um, I have the um, pleasure of giving CPR uh, to someone. Um, I used to work in law enforcement myself, and um, actually, it's kind of ironic uh, today that you know we're talking about this. So I, I'm actually today. Um, I just was at my friend's funeral, and I stepped out. Um, we sang at his funeral. He was a theater friend of ours, and he did the military rights. Um, he was in the Korean War and, and did other things, and he did the military rights at my grandpa's funeral just this December. And so I'm sitting across from the funeral home right now in front of the police department and the sheriff's department where I used to work. And when I work there, um, uh, both in corrections and then at the police department, I was a 911 dispatcher. So I had the pleasure of giving um, CPR instructions over the phone and hearing both people do well and succeed and, and having people not succeed and, and then, you know, die where I rattle yeah, and, and so forth. And so so traumatic um, in that uh, situation. 
and 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 I only mentioned and the fact that in hearing all of that and knowing all that when I we were traveling and I did CPR on a guy in a bathroom uh, my husband come running and said there's do you still know how to do CPR there's a guy who's I think dead in the bathroom and I went in and, and it actually was funny at the time because you talk about you know the the hair tickling your face I was laughing after the fact after we did revive him um, it's because I would lean down to give him a breath and he had a partner uh, there who was helping a friend give him you know CPR and I would give him a breath and then when I would lean up the hand dryer would go off and then when I'd lean down I'd almost put my face in the urinal and then the hand dryer would go off and it was it was stunk like pee it was hot you know, it was terrible but we were struggling and we were doing CPR for a really long time and the paramedic comes in and he's like is he responding and we're like no he's not responding we've been doing this been several minutes and he says move out of the way and comes down and he goes hey hey sir and slaps him really hard and the guy wakes up and goes huh huh and I'm like are you kidding me I could have just slapped him <laughs> it was yeah. it was ironically funny but he ended up surviving and I did hear afterwards they took him to another we were in Colorado and he was just where the air was too weak for his oxygen count for his body but he ended up living, uh, I stayed in touch with him for a couple of years, and he ended up thriving and doing really well. But you're right, that, that ability to do that for someone, especially in your situation where she did that where you were in a car accident, that's way more traumatic than someone who's just stopped breathing. I mean, that's a huge trauma. So I can't even imagine how she was able to bring you back like that. I mean, it really was a miracle. And, and yeah, it really was. She received, she received a lot of flowers and candy boxes of candy following that. <clears throat> but, oh, I believe it. Yeah, so go on. You were saying you were, went to counseling. Yeah, and, and at the end of the counseling, because I ended up with a uh, traumatic brain injury, uh, skull fracture, broken bones, a lot of missing skin, et cetera, and, and took uh, almost six months to completely recover. But at the end of that, the, the counselor told me uh, that God spared you for a reason, and it's up to you to find that reason. Two years later, in April of 1980, uh, I'm way up in the mountains in northern Arizona. I get a call from a dispatcher, uh, check it out a phone. And people have to remember in 1980 there was no such thing as a cell phone or Internet. <laughs> and, and she said, this is code 2 traffic, meaning it's emergency traffic. It does not involve your family. Um, 40 miles was the closest phone I call in. And she says, we, our department has just learned that there's a 7-year-old boy named Chris. Chris has terminal leukemia. Chris is only going to live maybe another week or two. Chris told his mother when he grows up, he wants to be a highway patrol motorcycle officer, just like Ponch and John. And that was his favorite show to watch. And the family contacted the highway patrol and said, is there any way that he could meet one of the motorcycle officers with the highway patrol and maybe hang around the headquarters building and just look around? And with permission of his mother and the doctors, our department went just all out on this. She said, the commanders want you to meet the meet Chris when he lands. Our helicopter is going to pick him up at his hospital, fly him to our headquarters building, and we want to time it so that when the helicopter is coming in, you are just pulling into the parking lot. And I was, okay, this sounds great. I had I'd never met this little boy, but it just sounded like it would be a fun assignment. And they timed it perfect. Just as I'm pulling into the landing zone is when the helicopter is approaching. You can see this little boy peeking out the window. And I had no idea what to expect. I, I figured the paramedics would help him out of this helicopter. He's just come off IVs. Helicopter lands, door opens, little red pair of sneakers jumps out, runs over the motorcycle. Hi, I'm Chris. Can I get on your motorcycle? This little boy is laughing and giggling, mm. and he had watched ships so much. And as I mentioned earlier, our motorcycles mm. were identical to California Highway Patrol. This is a siren. Can I turn it on? This button turns on the flashers. This is this this and that. Can I do that? Mm. What's in your saddlebags? It's the same as Ponch has in his. He is just laughing and giggling, and I'm getting the biggest kick out of this little boy. And I've looked at his mother, and she's crying. And I didn't understand that. Then it dawned on me, she has her seven-year-old back. He's not laying in a hospital bed. He's running around like a typical seven-year-old. Wow, well, Chris that would be went, so amazing. Yeah, Chris went out on that day to become the first and only honorary highway patrol officer in the history of the Arizona Highway Patrol, complete with his own smoky hat, as we call it, 
um, his own badge, which is still assigned to him today, uh, the certificate making him a uh, honorary patrolman. And he got to go home that night. His doctor who was with him said, I don't understand. His vitals are so good. Let's let him go home to his comfort zone. We felt good about what we did. And one of the guys said, well, we've got a, we've got a new trooper, but they need a uniform. And in those days, the uniforms were custom made. We rush over to the uniform shop just at closing time. We say, we've got this little boy, seven years old, this wide, this high. Will you make a uniform for Chris? Two ladies spent all night making a custom uniform for Chris. I got permission the next day to lead a whole group of motorcycle officers, car officers, out to Chris's neighborhood to present this uniform. Red lights and siren, 8 o'clock in the morning. You can imagine the neighbors right there coming out, what's going on. Chris comes running out, sees us, uh-huh. just a big smile. We hand him his uniform. This little boy's a quick-change artist. He runs in the house, comes out just strutting and beaming, wearing this brand-new uniform. But he comes over to me and asks to get out on a motorcycle again, of course, and he starts rubbing the motorcycle wings that a motorcycle officer wears on his uniform. And he said, and this is the first time I heard this wish, I wish I could be a motorcycle officer like you and Ponch and John. And I just started teasing Chris. I said, well, I explained the training that we had to go through, and I said, it's a shame you didn't have a motorcycle. We'd set up traffic cones right here in your driveway and test you. Chris runs in the house, comes riding out on a little battery-operated motorcycle his mother got for him in place of a wheelchair. He's got on the helmet. He's got on the motorcycle helmet we gave him. He's got on the aviator glasses that his mother got for him. And he's got on his mother had bought him what we call on the ranch here uh, the high rubber mucking boots that look like motorcycle officer boots. He's sitting there all serious. I will take my test. Yes, you will. He goes through the cones. He comes back. Did I pass? Yes, you did, Chris. When do I get my wings? Well, I said, Chris, those are custom made. I will order them, and we'll have those in a day or two. Do you promise? Of course I promise, Chris. We shook hands on it. A cowboy handshake. Chris got to stay home again that night. A couple days later, I pick up the wings. I get a phone call. Chris is in the hospital um, in a coma. He's probably going to not survive the day, you're authorized to go to the hospital. I go to the hospital. As I walk in, Chris is in a coma. His uniform is hanging right by his bed. Just as I pinned the wings on the uniform, Chris came out of the coma. He looks at me. Am I a motorcycle officer now? Yes, you are, Chris. He has this very weak smile. He asks for his uniform. He's rubbing the wings. He's showing them to me so proud. Unfortunately, a couple hours later, he died. I always like to think maybe those wings helped carry him to heaven. But our commanders learned that Chris was going to be buried in a little town called Kewanee, Illinois, uh, southwest of Chicago, and asked me and my partner to go back and give him a full police funeral. They said, we have lost a fellow officer. And we did go back to Kewanee. Now the press, again, this is before Internet, but the press started picking up this story of these two officers going to go bury this little boy. And we were met by city police, county police, state police, Illinois State Police to help bury this little boy. He was buried in uniform. His grave marker reads, Chris Gracious, Arizona Trooper. The flying home, I just started thinking, here's a boy who had a wish, and we made it happen. Why can't we do that for other children? And that's when the idea of the Make-A-Wish Foundation was born, about 35,000 feet over Kansas. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. The story in and of itself is so inspirational. And through Make-A-Wish, you have been so instrumental in making a gigantic impact. Do you have any idea how many lives Make-A-Wish has touched to date? Well, we're we're so fortunate. Um, actual wishes granted, and, and we're worldwide now. Um, and I'm going to back up a little bit. The hardest thing to do was to start the foundation. We had the idea, but I to bet. make that idea work, and and everybody that I went to was involved with helping Chris. Said it's a bad idea; it'll never work. Nobody's heard of this. And again, remembering one, turn that negative to the positive. And in Arizona, for to start a nonprofit, you had to have a total of five people per the Corp- Arizona Corporation Commission for a board of directors. 
And it took me six months to find those four other people because everybody said it wouldn't work. And, and you mentioned that I am the founder, I am the co-founder. I never want to diminish the fact that these four other people helped put this whole thing together. But to answer to your question, I was the first president and CEO. Um, to answer your question, since 1980, uh, over a half a million children have received wishes, and we've impacted over a million and a half when you count their families. Um, and this has happened just because one little boy. That's incredible. Really incredible. And our listeners are entrepreneurs. The majority of the listeners to this show are people who aren't in business just to make a buck. They're in business because they want to make an impact. And through the impact, they also want to have a sustainable living. What advice do you have for those entrepreneurs who are looking to make an impact in some way, shape, or form? Well, and, and for the profit world, um, and I've learned this, and, and even in your individual life, and I've learned this from some famous speakers I've been associated with, is to fill, the saying is to fill your own cup first. In your personal life, meaning financially, uh, get enough money and, and revenue in that cup to take care of you, your family, your responsibilities, and your business to get, make sure that business is up and running, that you are starting to show a profit. And when that cup starts running over, meaning you are well taken care of, your business is well established, then that might be the time to start giving back to the community, especially the community that's supporting whatever business it is, in the way of in-kind donations, monetary donations, uh, anything you can do to help the community. And it also helps establish your brand, that here is a brand that is wanting to give back to the community. Great advice. Andrea, what questions do you have for Frank? Did we lose Andrea? You better go check on her. <laughs> Let me go see where she went. Oh, she's muted. Hang on. Let me get her unmuted. Well, I'm doing that. You mentioned that you're worldwide. The wishes that you grant, are they just for kids, or are there other wishes that you grant as well? No, the, the Make-A-Wish Foundation is for children two and a half to 18, and it's for children with life-threatening illnesses. When we first started this, it was for children with terminal illnesses because in those days, um, a simple leukemia was a death sentence for the children. And now I say through yeah. the grace of God and modern medicine, more and more children, in fact, are surviving. And, and the latest figures that we got, which is so fantastic, is we have a 70% survival rate of these children that have these cancers that uh, they say wow. that uh, is uh, going to be, in fact, terminal, and they go into remission. And, and, and that is, that's a fantastic figure. In our original charter that we wrote, um, we put in there that hopefully someday the Make-A-Wish Foundation will go out of business. That they, these, there will uh, be, uh, yeah, there will be these cures for these cancers. Well, one well, of the back cool, really cool things Go ahead, of having the pleasure of, of traveling around the world as a speaker is I get to be at a lot of events with Frank. I, I see Frank uh, on a regular basis, and and I certainly love that honor. And I get the pleasure of running into people who have had their wishes come true. And this happened again this last weekend. There is a young gentleman named Tim Connors who is blind as a result or an after effect of the effect of having leukemia. And we were at the event and all of a sudden, and I love this because he had eyesight until uh, I think until he was like a junior, uh, you know, like 12 or something. I'm not for sure how old he was when he became um, blind, but he's, you can see him looking around the room, you know, so he's turning his head. Did I just hear someone say Frank is here? <laughs> and he's turned looking and then he's, and then he got up and shared that he was uh, one of the children who got to have one of his wishes come true and see him and Frank together, oh, my gosh, there was not a dry eye in the house. We were all at lunch together, and we were so choked up. And to um, see this young man who's really, really thriving. And then there was another ironic piece 
the, the kid is talking, Tim, and afterwards I go to talk to him, and I said, gosh, I just feel so connected to you. And he's like, yeah, me too. I just feel like I know you. And so I take his phone number, I plug it in my phone, and his name pops up in my phone. I said, you're in my phone. And he goes, no way. And then I, I said, I sent us a picture of ourselves. And he said, okay. And then he goes, oh, my gosh, I know why I know you. My phone just said, this is Andrea. She spoke at Ithaca College. I had met him in his third week of college when, um, as his first time as a college attendee as a blind student. And, um, and we met again that summer at the LEAP Foundation. So it was like this huge, fun reunion opportunity for us all to be together. And I can't even imagine what it would be like for you, Frank, to see this man who, who was a young boy who had his wish come true to be alive and thriving. He climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. He is now a speaker. He, next year I'm helping him. Um, he's gonna. Um, I'm gonna be a publicist for him and help him with sponsorship. He's going across the world on a tandem bicycle. Um, you know, it's just amazing stories. And this is one boy that you affected. One. Yeah, and that, that, I'm so fortunate. And that was a special moment, Andrea. As you saw, there was uh, not a dry eye in the room, uh, including me. <laughs> when, when we made that connection, we had no idea we were together there, but. Uh, and so in my speaking events, I, I meet constantly. In fact, even at that one, there are so many uh, people that were either um, mother, brother, sister, father, aunt, uncle, grandfather, friend, cousins of a wish child. I probably spoke to ten people just in that Dallas event that were related somehow to a child from Make-A-Wish. And that happens all over the country, and that's very special to me. I, I never took a salary when I was with Make-A-Wish. Um, People say, oh, that was great. I said, well, I had a job. I was getting paid. I wanted all that money to go into the foundation to help those kids. And my payback is just what you said, when I could meet these children. It's just always so special. Uh, I think you were there in um, San Diego when another wish child um, presented an award to me. Uh, yes. And I, I had been talking to this young man earlier. We just got along real good. I had no idea he was a wish child that had survived the brain cancer and doing great today and presented this award to me, and it just took me back. And now we're friends. I stay with friends with a lot of these guys, and just uh, guys and gals and on Facebook and so on. Well, and, and How are you able to continue? How are you able to continue working a full-time job and get the organization off the ground simultaneously? Well, it was very difficult. It, it, it just took a lot of time. Uh, the director of the uh, Arizona Department of Public Safety called me into his office when we started doing this and said, Frank, I realize what you're doing. He says, I support what you're doing. I think it's great. He says, but I want to make sure you give me eight hours work because I'm always high in, in my arrests, et cetera, especially DUIs. And he said, if it takes you 15 hours to give me eight hours of work, do it. I'm going to give you, in fact, an empty office. We're going to set up phones for you, fax machines, uh, copy machines, and so on, so you can do this. And we know you're going to have to do some daytime thing. And I did. It, it took forever to do this. But I just every time I got a little tired of this, I just someone would come and say, we've just found another wish child. So it's about them. It's not about me. And I guess that does push you just a little bit, doesn't it? Go ahead, Andrea. Well, I wanted to make sure that we give people enough uh, time to hear about the movie that's coming out in June, uh, Wish Man. So um, please tell us about the premiere and how people can get involved and what they, you know, just, it's, I'm just so excited about this. And I'm excited, too. About five years ago, a gentleman named Greg Reed, who is a mentor of mine in the speaking world, um, said, we want to do a movie about you. And I said, no, you don't. He said, yes, we do. And I thought he was talking about a documentary. And they said, no, we want to do a feature motion picture. Uh, we're going to title it Wish Band. We're going to uh, do, make the movie just what we had talked about. Uh, and it's a period piece from 1950 to 1980, the people that influenced me in my life and my incidents with the Highway Patrol and then starting the foundation, the idea. And it, uh, it took two and a half years just to write the screenplay. Um, Theo Davis, who Davies, who is a director, also wrote the original screenplay, and I'm smart enough to have script approval 
And uh, Hollywood likes to really embellish things. <laughs> oh, and do they ever? Yeah, and sometimes too much. And uh, we we had a fun, we had arguments, but we finally came together and and agreed on this final screenplay. I think he did a terrific job on it. And then we uh, started filming actually in 2017, and it was going to be filmed in either New Mexico or um, uh, Missouri. And I lobbied very hard. Arizona doesn't give film credits anymore to uh, Hollywood production teams. Lobbied very hard to get it filmed here in my area, Prescott, Arizona. And one of the big reasons was I want to give back to this community. When I was such a teenager, that helped me out. And, you know, when Hollywood comes into town, they're infusing several million dollars in the local economy. And we, they said, we can't afford it. Well, I got them. I know so many people here as an adult. Um, I got this old warehouse the county owns. Go to the county. I want to have this. You guys fix it up for us. Okay, we'll do it. Go to do bars. Go to rest. Go to all these places. We're not going to charge you. And they figured they can save almost a million dollars just on fees. So they did film it here. And great time filming. Uh, and the lead actor that plays me is, uh, in, again, the mid-30s, Andrew Steele, Andrew William Steele, Australian actor, very popular there. This is his first production uh, in the United States. And this young man worked so hard, actually a year and a half, that he worked with me. Um, we, first of all, we had to get rid of that accent, that Aussie accent. <laughs> and he did fabulous and on that, working with his dialect coaches. We had this, he had never ridden motorcycles, so we had to send him to a, a motorcycle school to get an actual license. And then we sent him with a CHP officer to teach him police, again, police riding for motorcycles. Had to send him through weapons training. Uh, this wow. this guy was just so good. One of the highlights of, of the casting was Larry Wilcox and I from Chips have become friends. And I asked him to do a cameo in there, and he said yes. And they're looking for a gentleman to play the motorcycle sergeant. And I thought, what better than Robert Pine, who was Sergeant Gratera on Chips, that played the motorcycle sergeant for years and years. And I asked Larry to contact him. Robert Pine called. We uh, went to the casting director, and that he agreed to do it. Just such a gentleman on the set. It was, he brought that maturity, as I call it, to the set. He set the bar for the younger actors on that. But everything filmed in Arizona. Um, we It took a year just for editing, which uh, was a lengthy process for me. And I was hired as a location scout, technical advisor, and consulting producer. And we finished the final editing in October of 2018. There was an uh, Arts for Peace award show featuring new films coming out. And of the five entries, we won. And we weren't even in the theaters yet. We won Best Inspirational Movie for 2018, uh, Best New Inspirational Actor for um, Andrew Steele, one of the young uh, boys in there, won Best New Actor. Uh, And he's just got notice of this thing. We sold it to a distributor recently, and it premieres in Hollywood at the Grauman's Egyptian Theater in Hollywood on June 4th of this year, the big red carpet. And it gets released to um, General Theaters on June 7th of this year. So five years has all come together, and we're really, I'm excited about the whole thing. That's super exciting. Will you also share about your star? <laughs> that, that is a total surprise. And, and people know in Hollywood you've got the uh, Walk of Fame, the Walk of Stars, and uh, they have the same thing in Las Vegas, uh, the Walk of Stars, uh, especially with the Las Vegas entertainers, the Frank Sinatras and Dean Martin and, and so on, Sammy Davis Jr., Elvis Presley. Um, and last it was in March. Uh, I was surprised at an event called Secret Knock, uh, speaking there, and they presented this wish child came up and said, "Here's your star on a what?" And I'm getting a star on the Walk of Stars in front of the Paris Hotel in Las Vegas on June 15th, and uh, it, the mayor has declared June 15th to be Frank Shankwitz Day in Las Vegas. Uh, the big ceremony of actually installing the star 
in the pavement, and then the big after party, and they're also going to show Wishman at one of the selected theaters that evening. So total surprise and honor. Uh, and my wife, who likes to go to Vegas every now and then, says, you know, we're going to have to really make sure that thing is shined all the time, so we might have to go every month or something. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was so what a good reason to go. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I was there at Secret Knock when when that was given to you, so that was I was like, oh, another really great moment to uh, you know be in your presence and have that happen, and it, it was so exciting. And uh, yeah, I'm in Vegas often myself, so I'll have to uh, definitely know where it is so that I can go see this. This is my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Well, this, don't this, uh, walk, walk oh, and and, and the movie. <laughs> yeah, and the movie. If I can mention. Um, if you could jot this down for the listeners, and they can jot it down too, and I'll go slow. Uh, they can nominate a someone they think is a hero in their life, and um, it will be going to the selection committee. And if that hero is selected, they will be offered the uh, to attend the red carpet premiere in Hollywood on June 4th with me and the rest of the cast and crew. Um, they and their family, and the person that nominates them will also be invited to attend so they can they can fill that out at uh wishmanhero.com wishmanhero.com and when you pull it up it will give you there's an application form that you can fill up it'll also give you all the information about the movie but you can fill out the application and uh hopefully one of those people will be joining me and the rest of the cast and crew on the red carpet well, that's certainly exciting. Um, yeah, uh, uh, Gina, we'll have to get you out there. <laughs> Absolutely. So how active well, are you in the organization today? Uh, not active at all right now. Uh, it's so much of a conflict of interest. But all of this notoriety, which I've never really asked for or anything, has given me a, a platform to uh, – help other nonprofits, and we just uh, started a new one uh, out of Las Vegas, uh, a retired police officer and I, uh, called the Wounded Blue. Uh, we just got our 501c3. When a police officer gets hurt in the line of duty, uh, people think it's like in the military, that the uh, city, state, county, wherever he works for, will take care of him. That's not a fact. Oh, no, not use, the case. Yeah, he has to use his own sick time. Uh, during recovery. When he runs out of sick time, he goes into vacation time. When he runs out of vacation time, uh, some areas will give him industrial compensation, one-third of his salary. And in the meantime, he's not getting paid. He's not getting any money. We're going to go in there and take care of that officer until he can go back to work. And this is a national effort, not just in one state or any particular agency. Also, with that, uh, so many officers are... um, suffering from PTSD these days. 156 officers killed themselves in line, of du- uh, in line of duty last year, committed suicide because of the stress. And if you go to your supervisors and say, I've got these issues, I've got these problems, you're terminated. If you can't handle it, you're fired. So we are going to offer counseling, private counseling. We've got a group of psychologists nationwide that are going to help these officers. It will all be private. The department won't know about it. Let's get their heads straight, get them back to work safely and uh, again also the injured officers let's take care of their salary and we're so fortunate we've got president trump's police liaison uh, helping us out on this uh, with uh, agencies all over the united states and if anybody's interested to find out what we're doing the woundedblue.org is the website you can check it out see what our mission is about it also gives me a platform to work with u.s vets uh it's not part of the Veterans Administration. Our mission in U.S. Vets is to find the homeless veterans, get them into temporary housing, get them into counseling, job training, job placement, permanent housing. And the nationwide, one of the few nonprofits that 88 cents of every dollar actually goes to the mission, one of the top-rated nonprofits in the world, and they've, I'm on their advisory board. Uh, we're just doing so much with these veterans. So it gives me this platform to work with other nonprofits. Well, for the work you're doing with the veterans, I am affiliated with an organization called, um, oh gosh, I just lost the name of it. It's basically a group that helps 
homeless vets, when they first get into a home that the Veterans Administration helps them get into, it's not furnished at all. It's furnishaveteran.org. And so they come in and they can help to bring furnishings in. It blows my mind. David Preston is the founder. He's a dear, dear friend of mine and was a homeless vet at one point. He is able to furnish a three-bedroom place for a vet and his family for as little as $52. It's an incredible organization. If you'd like an intro to David to see if you might not be able to help more vets through the work that they're doing, just let me know. I'm happy to make that introduction for you. Oh, please, please. Yes, we're doing everything we can. And and the, the whole thing with social right now is to help the veterans, help obviously the homeless and, and children and, and any, any organization that we can do to help with that. There's also a book that became a bestseller two years ago at Memorial Day that I helped make a bestseller. It's written by Jennifer Hammond, who's a uh, host of a radio show on Sirius XM Radio on Saturday mornings, and it's called 101 Resources for Veterans. She really wrote the book to help vets, and it is an amazing collection of resources that very few people are even aware of, even within the Veterans Administration. So I can also get you in touch with Jennifer. I'm sure she would love to have you on her show to talk about what you're doing. Oh, sure, sure. And while we're talking to books, if I can do a little plug. Please do. <laughs> my, my book, Wishman, is available on Amazon. And, uh, in fact, we're having a relaunch of it in um, May uh, with a hard hardcover book and uh it's available on amazon wish band two words so give it a whirl and that's what the movie was based on on that book Fantastic. and we're talking hollywood we're talking hollywood um you go to the movie and you say based on a true story wish man is based on a true story and like we said hollywood likes to embellish a little bit so the book is a true story <laughs> gotcha well, for the things that you're involved in right now, how can we help? Oh, just um, go to my website, Wishman1, the number one, wishman1.com, and it will direct you to all of these uh, things that I'm involved in. Um, obviously, Make-A-Wish Foundation, deep in my heart. If you're interested in that, you can go to wish.org. There's a locator on the top. Just put in your zip code. It will take you to direct chapter in your area. And anything you might want to do, in-kind donations, monetary donations, even volunteering. Uh, the other ones, the uh, Wounded Blue, again, volunteering, financial contributions, in-kind, U.S. vets. It's all on there. Anything you can do. My tagline is everyone can be a hero. And you can be a hero Great by helping tagline. something out. Yeah, by helping something out, by giving back to your community. Remember, it doesn't have to be money. Your time probably is more valuable than the money. I completely and totally agree with you. It's what I'm all about. Back in 2005, I was given 12 to 18 months to live, and six months later, had a total miracle, completely recovered. And ever since, I've made it my mission to touch the life of every person on this planet. I would venture to say that even though you've only helped 500,000 kids through wishes and you think one and a half million or more because of their families, I bet indirectly that Make-A-Wish and the work that you have done, Frank, truly has touched the life of every person on this planet. And I thank you for all that you have done for all these years. It, it really is a great example for us to follow. Well, I appreciate those comments, and thank you. I'm so looking forward to Wishman the movie when it comes out. It's my birthday on June 5th, so I will definitely not be able to forget because I usually celebrate for like a whole week, and one of my things I will be doing to celebrate my birthday this year will definitely be going to see the movie. And I hope <laughs> all of you will go there as well with me. Let's all go watch Wishman the week of June 7th when it premieres. Let's make sure that we go to 
uh, Wishman1, the number one, dot com, and check out all the things that Frank is up to and see how we might not be able to get involved and help make a bigger impact in this world as well. Thank you so much for being here, Frank. Thank you, Andrea, for making it happen and checking off one more item off of my bucket list. It truly has been an honor and a privilege to meet you, Frank. If I can ever help in anything you're up to, just let me know, and I will get you in touch with those couple of people I mentioned earlier. All right, ladies and again, thank you for the invitation to be on your show. Thank you. We'll be back next week, same time, same place with another episode of Leverage Masters. Have a great week, everybody. Tune in next week for another episode of Leverage Masters. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook on our Leverage Blackbook page to keep up with the latest. We'll see you next time on Leverage Masters.